Datomic is a database system based on an append-only record-keeping system. Datomic users can query the complete history of the database, and Datomic has ACID transactional support. The data within Datomic is stored in an underlying database system, such as Cassandra or Postgres. The database is written in Clojure and was co-authored by the creator of Clojure, Rich Hickey. Datomic has a unique architecture with a component called a peer, which gets embedded in an application backend. A peer stores a subset of the database data in memory in this application backend, improving the latency of database queries that hit this caching layer. Marshall Thompson works at Cognitect, the company that supports and sells the Datomic database. Marshall joins the show to talk about the architecture of Datomic, its applications, and the life of a query against the database. As always, we're looking for show ideas. If you have a great set of topics that you're interested in hearing more about, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're looking for interesting guests, great topics to cover in the world of software, and exciting conference talks or podcasts that you've heard. You can also tweet at us at software underscore daily. Marshall Thompson, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks, Jeff. You work at Cognitect, which helps make the Datomic database. Datomic was started in 2012. Describe the principles behind the Datomic database. Sure. So yeah, Datomic has been around in one form or another now in a couple of forms since 2012, as you said. And it was developed by, well, architected by Rich Hickey, who is the CTO of uh, Cognitect and also the author of the Clojure programming language. So unsurprisingly, a lot of the principles behind Datomic itself are very akin to those behind Clojure as a language and as a philosophy. And so those include things like immutability all the way up and down, simplicity at the core, and sort of opinionated perspective that Rich and the Clojure ecosystem have have sort of contributed to software in general, I think are well reflected in Datomic as a product and as a database. The classic model for applications that interact with the database backend is the client-server model. How does Datomic differ from the traditional client-server model? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think there's sort of a an original easy answer and sort of a more subtle answer uh, in, that, that follows from it. The answer, you know, three or four years ago would have been, well, Datomic isn't a client-server database because it uses something that we call the peer library instead of a client library. And the key difference there being that calls to do things in the database, whether it's run some query or, you know, do some ordering or, or whatever the work is that the database would traditionally do, actually occur in your own application code, in the JVM where your app is running. And that's why we called it a peer instead of a client. In the years since, with the release of Datomic Cloud, which I'm guessing we'll talk about in a little while, the lines have blurred a little bit uh, in that we actually do have the ability to use Datomic in a more client-servery sort of sense. There is the Datomic Client API, and the Datomic Cloud database acts a little more like a server where you send a request over the wire, and uh, the database does some work, and then it turns around and sends you an answer. But, of course, as we released that, a lot of customers said, hey, you know, this whole cloud thing is cool, but I really miss that in-my-app processability, locality with the data, uh, being able to control where this work happens. So 
in the time since then, we've actually released some additional features for Datomic Cloud, including what we call IONS, which is where you can deploy your code into the running JVM that's up on the Datomic Cloud system to bring back some of that sort of database in your local process nature that was really popular with the peer API. So you mentioned this peer API, this this concept of peering. This is pretty core to how Datomic has historically worked. Can you explain what that term peer means? Sure, absolutely. So the Datomic database is a decentralized database. And the idea here is that instead of having all the work the database does, whether it's storage or or writing things to the database or reading things from the database all in one place, which is sort of the traditional model that you'd see in a, in a RDBMS, Datomic is distributed. So we have a process called the transactor that's responsible for doing the right work. So it's what actually persists data that you have transacted to the system. We also have, in the example that you're discussing, Datomic peers. So peers are actually any JVM that's running the Datomic API as a JVM dependency. And those peers are able to read the database, but not through that transactor instance that I talked about. They actually read from directly from the disk storage, the persistence layer. So Datomic also sort of outsources the persistence to other options, and that makes it sort of modular. And the peer library is able to read those persistence layers directly into your JVM, and it includes facilities for local caching and, and using additional caches if appropriate. But what that means is that you essentially get unlimited read uh, horizontal read scalability by spinning up more of your app servers, right? So any JVM that is running this Datomic peer library is considered a Datomic peer, and it can read the entire contents of that Datomic database's uh, contents, excuse me, from storage, perform all the work of query, and it does all that in memory on your process. Then whenever your application says, hey, I need to write something to the database, it issues a transaction, and that's sent then over the wire to the transactor instance that I mentioned, which is actually the bit that's responsible for persisting that information. As you mentioned, Datomic uses an underlying storage service, and this means that there's an actual underlying database to a Datomic instance, like Postgres or Cassandra or DynamoDB, why do I need another database that sits under my Datomic database? Sure. So the way Datomic uses storage, and you're correct, many of the storages that are available are themselves databases, uh, is largely a key value uh, sort of usage. So Datomic writes chunks of data to it as, as sort of opaque blobs that are indexed with a UUID. The actual semantic access to the data in Datomic is only through the Datomic APIs. So when we talk about using Datomic, the schema that you can use, the way that your data is laid out, the hierarchical categorization of your entities and the relationships between those entities, all of that semantic information is only uh, available through the Datomic API itself because Datomic is responsible for making as a, as a something that, that your system can consume. The decision to make a pluggable storage is actually was made to make it sort of more portable and more available in many places. So, you know, some customers with Datomic on-prem say, well, I have to run my own data center. And, you know, our DevOps people say you can use anything you want as long as it's Oracle. Others say, hey, I'm, I'm 100% on this cloud thing and this DynamoDB sounds great. I want to use that. So the ability to sort of outsource or step away one layer from the persistence layer itself allows you to deploy Datomic in a lot of different uh, scenarios that, you know, may or may not be available to everyone. Datomic 
is written in Clojure. Can you give a brief overview of the Clojure language and why it's useful for a database like Datomic to be written in Clojure? Sure. So Clojure is a Lisp that runs on the JVM. So I would say a f- about 2005 or 2006, and I'm not the Clojure historian here. You should talk to Alex Miller, but Alex or Rich. Rich Hickey, who had spent uh, most of his career working on large distributed transactional systems, felt that there might be a better way of doing this sort of work. And so he took a sabbatical and authored the Clojure language as uh, his approach to the way that he wanted to build software. And Clojure values a lot of things fundamentally uh, differently than, than some other languages. So I already mentioned immutability. Clojure is a fully immutable language. So, you know, by default, everything is an immutable data structure. Clojure is very data-oriented. It's a functional programming language. So a lot of these principles are the things that Rich felt strongly were better tools for building large distributed complex systems in a way that was both simpler and easier to maintain. So all of that influences also the design of Datomic. So Datomic comes from the same set of principles that things should be modular, things should be functional. Data is what's important, right? Not necessarily objects or abstractions, but the actual data and the transformations of that data. And also that systems should be designed in a simple way to make them future-proof in the sense that they remain easy and straightforward to maintain and extend in the future. A Datomic database stores a collection of facts in the underlying storage system. And most databases, you, you think of them as storing documents, like a NoSQL database, or in the case of a relational database, you think of rows and columns. What is a fact? Why am I building a database out of facts? Right. So another way of saying that is that Datomic is actually a tuple store in similar ways to, for instance, RDF. So the relational data framework is is a three-tuple, right? That's been around for a very long time. And the idea behind that is it's an entity, an attribute, and a value. So you can say lots of, almost everything you want to say about information and data modeling as represented by that entity uh, attribute value pairing. So you can say things like Jeff is an entity, right? And what does Jeff do? Jeff hosts. And what does Jeff host? He hosts this podcast. So that's an entity is Jeff. The attribute is what you do. And the podcast is the value of the thing that you do that with. However, there are some definite shortcomings with just an EAV tuple model. And one of those is the nature of time. So often, and this is you know unsurprising to anyone who's used most traditional databases, there are lots of different approaches that people have taken, but often it's very cumbersome to sort of model, when did this happen in my database, right? What was the state yesterday? Is it possible for me to rewind what my database looked like yesterday or last Tuesday or last Thursday versus what it looks like right now? So that's where the fourth element of the datomic tuple. So the datomic is actually a five tuple. It's entity, attribute, value, then transaction and operation. So transaction is represents the fact that datomic remembers the transaction time. So that's essentially the transactor machine time that every fact has been added to the system. Uh, what this means is that you can do what I just suggested. You can very simply ask datomic, hey, what was the state of my database last week at 2 p.m.? And you get a value of the database back that represents exactly what that looked like, which it turns out is extremely powerful for debugging, 
for audit uh, auditability, which is one of the places where we see a lot of uh, traction in, as far as our customers being interested in Datomic and, and its applications. And the final element of that tuple that I mentioned is the operation. So that's whether or not you're adding this fact saying, this is true now, or you're retracting a fact. So Marshall likes pizza. I'm going to say, you know, that's true right as, as of right now. And then, you know, two hours from now, Marshall no longer likes pizza. Uh, so I can retract that fact. And this speaks now to the fact that I mentioned that Datomic is a, an immutable database, right? So we can't just take things away. If we want to remember what the sta- state of the world was last Tuesday, I can't go in and delete the datum that said, hey, you know, the fact that said, hey, Marshall liked pizza. I have to now assert that I no longer like pizza. So that's what the last element of that tuple is for. And it turns out that this five-tuple model is a very powerful and flexible way of modeling data. Uh, that lets you do things, as you suggested, like row modeling, right? So a row equivalent in Datomic is give me all the facts about a given entity, right? That's sort of like a row query. So find all the facts that have the same E. On the other hand, you can do things like say, hey, tell me all the facts about the same A, right? So that's a little more like a column-like query of the data. But you can also have datums about other entities. So there's a type in Datomic called a reference. And this allows you to model things like hierarchical and graph structures because you can traverse from one entity to another through a relationship type of of fact. How does the sequence of facts, how does that compare to a database replication log? Like the, you know, I I know um, like Postgres, for example, has this log of transactions that you can roll back to or roll forward in in any at any point so you can sort of ha- you can replay the database to any particular time is a fact the 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 fact store for datomic is that serve a similar purpose that's an interesting question the answer is sort of it depends or yes and no depending on how you like to look at it datomic does have a transaction log that is very much analogous to sort of a traditional SQL transaction log in that it is a an ordered series of every transaction that has ever happened. So I, we didn't mention it yet, but Datomic is a fully ACID transactional database. So every time you send a transaction, that is either fully committed or fully not committed, and it's done durably and in an isolated fashion. So there is a log in that sense uh, of, of the word where you can say, hey, what was the previous transaction? What was the one three transactions before that? However... Uh, that data structure uh, is not inherently particularly powerful for asking questions about unless your question is specifically what just happened or what happened at, you know, three happenings ago. What you need then are more powerful indexes for asking questions like the ones that I just suggested. Hey, I want to know about the entity Jeff, right? And I don't care when uh, it was established that Jeff hosts this podcast or I don't care when it was established that Marshall likes pizza. I just need to know that fact. So Datomic has what we call multiple spanning indexes. So I talked about the datum has these five parts, EA, VT, and op. Those facts, those datums are actually stored in Datomic more than once. And the reason for that is that they're stored in many different indexes that are ordered in different fashions. So we have an index that's e-leading, right? So when I ask questions about the entity Marshall or the entity Jeff, we know we can look in this index that's sorted by E's and we'll find all the Jeff datums together. Similarly, there's one that's A-leading. So when we ask about, you know, hosts or what people like, we can go find all the datums about that in the same place in that other index. So 
sort of a long answer to your short question is, yes, Datomic has that transactional log, but it also has additional spanning indexes that provide the ability to ask more sophisticated questions in an efficient way than you would normally expect from just a, a uh, sort of appended transactional log. I'd like to know more about these facts. So can you tell me, like, how does a fact get created? So if I do a write to my Datomic database, what kind of fact does that result in? And what's my interface into that information? Sure. So facts in Datomic, or datums as we call them, are are literally just these tuples that I mentioned. And the shape of the datums that you can put in your database is defined to some degree by the schema that you've you've installed. And it turns out that, like in Clojure, Datomic treats everything it possibly can as data, and that includes the schema. So there are some requirements, for instance, your, your schema attributes. So we've been talking about the attribute, you know, what kind of food I like. That may be an attribute that I've installed in my system, and it may have the type string, right? So I've said, anytime I'm going to talk about things I like, those things are going to be strings. But the actual requirements for the schema are fairly minimal, and again, they're just data. So the way that you put the schema in, and also the way that you add any data to the system, is through the Transact API. So this is a, you know, Datomic has uh, Clojure APIs for Datomic Cloud, and for a Datomic On-Prem, we actually have Clojure and Java uh, APIs. And you basically pass the Transact function a list of either lists or maps. So, you know, for those of you who are familiar with Clojure, this is not surprising. Eden, being the extensible data notation, is the language that uh, Clojure speaks, as it were, and it is similarly the language or the data format that Datomic speaks. So you can write those those new datums, the new facts you want to add, uh, in a couple of ways. The most basic way is a list that says, hey, add, and then you give it an entity, an attribute, and a value. And the transaction time gets added automatically by the transacting system. So it's literally just a vector of four things, add, your E, A, V, your E, A, and V. We also have the convenience sort of wrapping of something called the entity uh, or entity maps. So it's often much more uh, useful to be able to say a bunch of things about a given entity at once, right? So I want to put in, okay, I want to create a new entity called Marshall and it has a name and it has a social security number and a phone number and an address and, you know, maybe some of the things it likes. I want to wrap all of that in sort of some convenient data structure. So in Clojure, the way we do that is you put it in a map and each of the attributes will become an attribute of that particular entity. So everything in that map is about that one entity, Marshall, that's being created uh, as part of this transaction. And then the transactor does the work of actually splitting that up into a set of individual datums, right? Where your address may be one datum with a string and your your phone number may be one data that, uh, you know, one other datum that's a string and your social security number may be a, I don't know, a long uh, or whatever the sort of specific data types of those things are. What's interesting is if you actually look at the return value of that call to the transact function, what you'll actually get back is a set of the expanded individual datums that were added. So if you're sort of curious, hey, what does this entity map actually turn into when it gets put into Datomic, uh, the return value of that call actually includes a list of all the specific individual datums that were created as part of that transaction. I'd like to revisit this architectural piece that you touched on called the transactor. Can you explain what the transactor is? Sure, absolutely. So this is now we're speaking specifically about the Datomic on-prem product because the Datomic cloud product has a slightly different architecture. The transactor, I mentioned early on that, that Datomic is a modular distributed system in that there's a part that does the writes, 
There's a part that does the work of query and the reads, uh, and then there's the storage that are all sort of separate instances or separate systems. The transactor is the one that's responsible for doing those writes. So that is a process that you're running presumably in your data center or, or on an AWS instance. And it's, its primary job, and, and really its only job, is making sure to provide the ACID uh, fully isolated transactions for that system. So it accepts calls to the transact API that we just discussed from peers, and it persists those datums to storage. Secondarily, I mentioned earlier that there's these other indexes that provide efficient query of different shapes and sizes. Uh, the transactor is responsible for periodically folding all the new datums that you've put in into those persistent disk indexes. So that's a job we call indexing, uh, which is you know a pretty pretty standard thing that most relational database systems do. Uh, you amortize the cost of sort of folding in all that novelty into your persistent indexes by accumulating some of it over a period of time and then periodically writing that and incorporating it into the, the overall persistent index. And what are the conditions? I mean, would I, would I ever need to scale up my transactor? Like under heavy load, do I need to have multiple instances of a transactor or is it completely a, a singleton concept? Right. So again, speaking specifically of Datomic on-prem, the transactor is a, so Datomic is a single writer system. Uh, this is one of the ways, and, and it's probably the mo most important way that Datomic ensures total ACID compliance, right? There's no sense of, you know, you can tune up or down the ACID level, right? There's no isolation factor like you'd see in some SQL databases. With Datomic, you get all ACID all the time. And one of the ways that that's ensured is that only one thread, only one process is ever responsible for writing to that transaction log that we discussed. And that, that lives in the transactor. So the question of scaling is an interesting one. Real quick as an aside, you often do run two transactors because Datomic provides high availability. So we, you can run a second transactor. It actually sits in standby and it monitors the heartbeat that the primary transactor writes. And if you have you know, a system failure or a network hiccup or something that, that takes that initial transactor, that, that active transactor out of commission, then you get a failover occurrence without any uh, loss of transactionality or data loss or anything like that. So you, you do get the high availability side. But as far as scaling, you wouldn't scale by increasing the number of instances. Uh, you can certainly scale the size of that transactor machine and, you know, the JVM that runs on it. One of the, you know, unsurprisingly frequent questions we get is, well, yeah, but I want to scale bigger than that. But one of the places where Datomic differs, as I've sort of already discussed, from a lot of more traditional database systems is that you don't have to serve all of the read load through that transactor instance. Right? Its only job is managing the incoming stream of novel writes. And what that means for most systems is that you no longer have to worry about doing things like you would in uh, you know, some, some sort of more relational traditional systems where you have to build all these read replicas and, and manage how you route traffic to one versus another and, and all this sort of stuff because your peers are where the actual read work is happening. So what that means is that the overall amount of work that's being done by that transactor is often less than people expect when they're coming from sort of a more traditional RDBMS system. And so having that be the single point where writes go through is, is very frequently not a, a big issue as far as scale is concerned. What's the process for me to set up a Datomic database? Is, is it any different than setting up a typical SQL database or a NoSQL database like Mongo? 
I would say this is a place where Datomic Cloud, which is a newer product than Datomic On-Prem, particularly shines. So Datomic On-Prem, which is largely what we've been discussing, is distributed as a jar, is distributed as a jar file. So, you know, you sign up for a license and you can download the, the distribution and then it's up to you to sort of put it up on a server and start it. We have some facilities for helping manage that in AWS. And there are some community solutions for doing that on sort of other cloud providers or on-prem. But there's a little bit of ops involved, right? And granted, there is also sort of a local dev mode. If you just want to try it out with local disk persistence, uh, that's quite straightforward. On the other hand, Datomic Cloud, which is a product that we launched about two years ago now, uses all the same semantic guarantees as Datomic. So all of the stuff about how datums work and the ACID promises and a lot of this that we've already talked about are 100% applicable to Datomic Cloud. But the difference is that Datomic Cloud is specifically an AWS marketplace product. And what this means is that launching a Datomic Cloud database is essentially a one-click experience. You go to the Datomic Cloud Marketplace listing, you agree to the subscription, and you click launch. Uh, and then, you know, five to eight minutes later, you have a Datomic instance running in your AWS account that you can connect to either from your laptop via an SSH bastion or from a, a client instance running in your EC2, in your uh, AWS account. And if I'm setting up a Datomic database, what about defining my schema? Is there anything unusual I need to do when I'm defining the database schema? Uh, that's a really good question. I think unusual is a, is an interesting word for, for discussing that, I think. As we already discussed, datomic schema is just data. Uh, so, you know, the exercise that I tend to like to encourage people to do is, you know, sit down and think about how you would model your domain once you sort of know the very basics that, that are needed to, to write the schema, right? So you need to know, how do I define an attribute? What are the value types I can choose, et cetera? And, and sort of draw a picture, right? Uh, make a table of your various entity types and what the relationships between them look like. And then essentially, if you, if you sort of draw up, you know, I, I'm, I'm not advocating going all the way to UML necessarily, but sort of like an entity relation diagram, if you will. Every attribute in each one of your entities essentially becomes a schema element, right? So then you write those up, uh, you write them into an Eden file, and you can transact that whole thing to your Datomic system and you're ready to go. Now, inevitably, you'll get it wrong the first time um, because that, that's part of the learning experience, but also that's, that's how data modeling often goes. We learn new, new issues, new business questions come up. We realize that maybe we didn't model something the way we actually thought we should have. So one of the advantages that Datomic has there is that, again, because schema is just data, you can update, you can add schema more or less any time you want. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about the Marshall entity, you know, six weeks from now, I realized, oh man, I really wish that I had tracked, you know, the shoe size of my people entities because I've decided to pivot and now I'm a shoe company. Well, instead of having to sort of do a giant ETL or figure out some other way of handling that, you just say, okay, well, now I have, now I want to add a new schema element to my database. Uh, we're going to call it shoe size and it's going to be an integer. And you transact that schema and you're done. And you can start adding shoe size values to any existing entities or new entities sort of as you see fit. We've touched a little bit on this, this model of runtime that Datomic uses, the, the peer model, where you have a peer component that gets embedded in the application and the peer component can store some data in memory near the actual application. So does this mean like if I'm running my web app, 
let's say I'm running softwaredaily.com and I make some query for a set of users, am I fetching the data from my local application, from the application that's sitting in my browser? So generally, I would say not in your browser necessarily, but certainly possibly from your web server. So that cache is in the JVM, right? So your your web application, you know, this is a little bit of a hair-splitting thing, but, I, you know, you wouldn't run the peer library in uh, a front-end app like JavaScript, for instance. Uh, it definitely is a JVM resident library. But otherwise, yes. I mean, you know, what you said is is largely true. And what's interesting is for users who have relatively small working data sets. So, you know, if if the actual set of data that your app cares about is fairly small, a surprisingly large percentage of that may end up in cache in your application server instances. So this means that writing queries against it is essentially as fast as you can get things back and forth from your web server. And I think one of the things that makes that even better is that Datomic is able to use memcached so we have the ability to stand up a, if you stand up a memcached cluster, you can configure both your peers and your transactors to use that. And we've definitely seen that some customers who have modestly sized databases can stand up memcached clusters that are approximately the size of their database. And if that's the case, then almost all queries you ever serve are coming from a memcached request by your web server, as opposed to a fetch from, you know, local di- from disk in the way that you would have sort of in a more traditional RDB round trip sort of system. I understand. Okay, this is what I was confused by. So in a situation where, for example, I might be using Mongo, and I'm making a query from my web application front end, I hit my web application backend, and the web application backend hits the database service and gets it out of the database, which is on some different server. In the Datomic world, I'm going to have a local in-memory system that is managing some subset of my entire Datomic database that is on the same server as my my application backend. Now, what I'm curious about is if I'm storing some subset of my entire database on the application backend, how much of the database am I storing? Like how what how big is the subset of my entire database that's going to get stored on my uh, web application backend? Sure. So that is a configurable parameter. It's called the object cache. It's specifically the bit of cache that we're talking about in this case. The size of that by default is, if you're using the peer library, is set to half of your JVM heap, uh, but that is you know fully configurable. One of the neat things about the way that works, and so yes, your your sort of description of that is exactly right. You know your app is in the database uh, in the sense that not only is it on the same server, it's not even a sort of out of process call, right? This is all happening in the same JVM where you have the peer the peer grants you. Uh, access to, to a local copy, uh, local value of the database is the way we like to think about it. And you're right, some subset of that is live in memory in your Java system. Um, now, obviously, the object cache is, is caching Java objects. 
right, which are fairly fat in memory relative to other possible ways of caching things. So it's probably unlikely that for any sort of sizable system, your entire database is going to fit an object cache. Um, but then, you know, that's, that's where you move to then having memcached, as I mentioned, as sort of the next backstop, right? So where, where a fetch from local memory is, what, nanoseconds, I guess, for an object, uh, you know, you're talking less than 10 microseconds, uh, milliseconds for a fetch from memcached versus, you know, tens to 100 for a storage git, potentially. So if we were talking about a database read from my application front end, or, you know, some operation that's going to result in a database read that's coming from my application front end, and it's going to hit the the datomic cache, uh, or I don't know if you want, if you call it a cache, I guess the peer embedded application, how would the latency there compare to if I was using just, just a, uh, like, let's say I was using MongoDB or, or uh, Postgres, and I just had like a Redis, a Redis cache or a memcached uh, cache that I'm managing myself. Sure. It's, it's obviously very hard to say because it's going to depend a lot on what's in your object cache versus what isn't, you know, uh, and also potentially how much work has to be done, right? Uh, and in both of those cases, right? I think independent of whether you're talking about Datomic or sort of a more traditional relational database system, you know, there, there's both the latency of, hey, I know exactly where this bit of 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 information I need is on disk and I have to grab it versus I have to do some munging and I have to, you know, search some, some, uh, some uh, key space and I have to do a join. But if we try to sort of equalize all of that out as best we can, the general experience that our customers have is that when you've set up a datomic system with, you know, sizable caches and things are tuned well, it's very, very fast. A lot of these requests, and the interesting thing I think about this is we mentioned horizontal read scaling. I would say that, you know, a really cool approach that you can take when using Datomic is if you have a fairly complex system that has many different features and, and sort of front-end or more, more user-facing use cases, you can spin up a peer, you know, your individual application server for each one of those use cases. And because the object cache in that instance is tied to the behavior and the specific questions that instance has been asking and serving, then the result of that is that each one of those could have its own sort of finely tuned cache for the job it does, right? So you may have one web server that's responsible for sort of your, your user login, account management stuff, but you may have another one that's, that's responsible for you know, some other aspect of your system. Uh, and you may have a, an entirely separate web server that's dedicated to serving back-end more analytics queries for your, your quants. Uh, and the individual object caches on each one of those are going to differ based on the bits of data that each one of them are responsible have been responsible for answering questions about. And then if you sort of route your requests appropriately so that, you know, more analytics queries hit that same analytics-focused instance that's higher likelihood that the sort of data they're going to be asking for is already hot in those caches. I'd like to revisit the question of a read, uh, and then we can get to a, a write as well, to get a picture of the database architecture as a whole. So let's say I'm making a, a read of just a, a single record from my database uh, or sorry, from my app web application front end, can you just walk me through how that read propagates through the datomic system? Uh, maybe you could give it examples of 
the data being in that application cache, the, the peer component, uh, as well as what happens when the data is, is not in that peer component. Sure. So similar to the transact API that we talked about before, there are a couple of read functioned APIs for Datomic. Probably the most common one you'll see initially is the query API. So Datomic uses Datalog as its query language. So let's say you've sent a Datalog query to your application server in one form or another. Uh, so now in that system, you've invoked the D slash Q API. What happens is Datomic, the peer library, will compile that query as necessary and say, okay, I, I know what I need to look for, right? And depending on the complexity of that query, that may be uh, in, may involve one or more of those indexes that we talked about before, that it knows how to more, most efficiently find the things that match the parameters that you've asked for. So it will then say, okay, I know what the overall tree of these indexes look like. So Datomic stores all of its datums in a, in a shallow tree, and it'll say, I need to find the segment where this particular set of datums foo is at. And that segment is going to be identified by a UUID, and maybe I already have it in my local cache. Right, So if that's the case, then it can read it from the local object cache. It can feed it back into the query engine that's responsible for you know, doing the joins and whatever. And then obviously as additional uh, bits of data are, are refer returned to it as appropriate, it can do those joins and return your, your answer. If, on the other hand, it says, okay, I, I, need, I know I need this particular bit of data foo from this index. It's not in my object cache. I'm going to go look in memcached. It says, okay, well, let's presume it's not in memcached this time. The peer library does not go to the transactor. It goes directly to the storage backend. So remember, we said you can use many different pluggable storages, whether they be a SQL store, a Postgres, or a DynamoDB, Cassandra. The peer itself accesses those storages directly and says, hey, give me the segment with the ID foo, right, that I know these bits of data that I'm interested in is located in. And then if you have memcache configured, it will sort of at the same time that it's done that read from storage, it will write that that segment into uh, the memcached instance, as well as bringing it into your, your peer application, caching it there in the local object cache, and then it'll do sort of everything I talked about before, which is it'll look in there, it'll find the specific datums that it knew it was looking for, pass them up to the query engine for you know either return or inclusion and additional joins. And how does a write contrast with the read path of Datomic? Right. So... If your application says, hey, I need to transact this data, you know, Marshall shoe size is 10, you have called the dtransact API that we mentioned before. And what the peer does then is it says, hey, uh, you know, this needs to be persisted. That's the transactor's job. So it sends that, that information, that, needs, that transaction itself, across the wire to that transactor instance that we talked about, where it's put in the write queue. And you can either do this synchronously or asynchronously, right? There are APIs for both. Uh, let's assume you're doing synchronously. The peer will then be waiting for a return value from that transactor. Uh, the transactor will grab that, that transaction data and it will persist it to disk. So before it ever acknowledges that any write has been achieved, that you're guaranteed that that write has been persisted to that transaction log that we talked about before. Uh, so what that means is if, you're, if your peer, if your client instance has said, hey, you know, I got an acknowledged write and then immediately all the power in the US goes out, when that power comes back on and you turn your database back on, uh, you're guaranteed that that data will still be there. So uh, the transactor will take that transaction data. It will do any work that it needs to do. So Datomic allows you to, to specify that things might be uh, unique, for instance. So you, you can have unique values and unique identities. 
So that transactor may have to do a little bit of work to say, okay, you've just said that you want to create an entity called Marshall, and you know the entity name is something that you said can only be a unique value. It may have to make sure that there's not already a Marshall in the in the in the uh, in the database, right? That you're not doing something that's sort of not permitted by your uniqueness constraints. Uh, once it's made sure that everything is good there, then it persists that to the disk and it returns a, a acknowledgement to the caller that the transaction has been persisted. Are there any conditions that can lead to data consistency issues with Datomic? No. Like inconsistent writes or reads? Right. So no. Uh, Datomic is from the very beginning, as I, I sort of briefly alluded to before, intended and and designed to be a fully acid uh, system that doesn't allow you to end up with staleness or uh, inconsistent views. Uh, Datomic considers consistency the the primary goal of the database. So if there is a situation on which Datomic has to choose between consistency and availability, it will choose consistency. And what about, uh, so So, what are the conditions that can lead to latency in that uh, availability scenario or, or, um, or some kind of inability to serve a request due to low availability? Sure. Speaking from the right side specifically, that connection to storage, right? So obviously this is all distributed computing. Uh, things happen. If the transactor can't reach storage, it will. It does have significant retry built in. But after a certain period of time, which is configurable, at least in Datomic on-prem, we call the heartbeat. If the transactor is unable to write to storage, it will say, that's it. I can't persist things. This is a consistency violation. I'm going to shut down. So if you get a heartbeat failure, Datomic's transactor will, will terminate. That's where that HA failover that we talked about earlier comes in. As far as sort of on the support side of things, that's one of the predominant uh, number one causes of sort of datomic systems going out or going down is, you know, everything was great. And then, and then it went down because storage was misconfigured or, you know, someone turned off storage, not realizing that it was related to datomic or that sort of thing. That's the, the predominant one. Obviously, again, being a distributed system, just general networking sort of messages could not be passed between peers and transactors or transactor and storage can lead to some amount of uh, latency in a system, but usually either the built-in or some client-level retry can handle most most cases of that that we see in the wild. How does database indexing work in Datomic? Like, how does the database make any indexes by automatically, and, and what happens when a user wants to define their own index? Right. That's a great question, and it comes right after the sort of path that we talked about with respect to writing datums. So, as we mentioned earlier... Uh, Datomic is a multiple-spanning index database, so it does, in fact, maintain numerous indexes, uh, and those are differ by the sort of the elements of the tuples in Datomic, right? So those datums are sorted either by AEVT or VAET or EAVT, uh, and Datomic automatically manages and updates those indexes in in real time, effectively. Uh, the way that it actually does that is is it amortizes the cost of putting data into those indexes over time. So as you accumulate a certain amount of novelty, by default, that's like 32 megs of, of new data, Datomic will kick off an indexing job where the transactor says, okay, I need to fold this stuff into the persistent indexes on disk. So it does all that work and it writes the new segments to storage and, and or memcached if configured. And then it notifies all the peers, hey, there's you know a new index route. You could start using that now. Um, prior to that indexing job, all of that novelty was held in what we call the memory index. So it's not like you can't see that data 
uh, from your queries until the indexing job happens, right? It's always visible and it's always there. The question is whether Datomic is fetching that from the persistent written on disk storage index or whether it's fetching it from a memory index that it folds in as part of the business of answering queries. You'd also asked about uh, sort of individual user specified indexes. Datomic on-prem included one optional index, which was the AVET index, where you could specify for certain attributes, I want that index turned on. Uh, Datomic Cloud actually, by default, turns on all of them. Uh, and the reason for that is that there was initially the, the idea that that might have been a slightly more expensive index to maintain for Datomic. Uh, but after a couple of years of sort of having customers use it in fury, it turned out that it was not a problem. So our recommendation now is actually to just generally run with that on all the time because it, it makes life better uh, for queries that can take advantage of it. And it turns out not to be overly expensive for Datomic to do that. Um, as far as custom indexes in the sense that you would sort of think of them with, you know, SQL or a DynamoDB or something like that, until recently, th there was sort of no facility for that. But what's interesting is we've, we've recently released a feature called tuples. Uh, so this is before this, all V positions in, in datum, so the value, they were all scalar types. Uh, but we've now released the ability to put a variable length tuple of datum of data in that V position. So you can have a V position that is, you know, three things, a string, a string, a string, or a long, an int, a string, whatever. And it turns out that one of the, it's a one, one of the reasons that, that, you know, one of the strong reasons for doing that was that lets you uh, build compound, compound or composite uniqueness keys. Uh, but it also turns out that you can essentially leverage that feature to automatically get custom indexes on any pair or three or four set of uh, individual values you care to. Because Datomic is already building all those indexes we already talked about, anywhere that that V is, right, whether it's the AVET index or the EAV index, it will sort those tuples lexicographically, you know, the first, second, third element. What that means is if you put two things that you care about asking questions about together into a tuple in the V position, you've automatically created sections of your overall index that act like secondary indexes would in sort of a more traditional relational database. So you can write your query to specifically say, hey, I'm asking about the combination of the person's name and address, right? So go to the section of that index via, you know, very efficient tree lookup that, that talks about all the person address value associations as opposed to find me all the people, find all their addresses, then find all their names. Datomic has the ability to query the history of the database built in. It has an automatic versioning history. Uh, can you describe the conditions under which people might want to query the history of the database? Sure. So yes, that fourth element of the, the datum that we talked about is the T, right? So that's the transaction ID, uh, which is associated with a time, of every transaction that goes into the, into the datomic system. What that means is that every fact has a, has a timestamp, effectively. You can, as you said, ask, what did the, you know, I want to run this query about people and their addresses, and I want to run it right now, but I also want to run it, and I want to see exactly what it would have returned to me last Tuesday at 2 p.m. Similarly, I want to ask about everything that's changed since last Tuesday at 2 p.m. and now, right? And those are slightly subtle differences, but they are, are different things you're asking. Datomic provides out of the box the ability to do all of these things by 
applying a filter to the database that we call a time filter. So you can say as of. So you can say, show me the database as of last Tuesday at 2 p.m. Or you can say, show me all the things that happened since, you know, time foo. There are a number of very interesting applications for this. I think one of the places where people have, have gained a ton of advantage from this, certainly, is in debugging, right? You know, a user reported a problem, and now it's fine. Everything's working fine now, and I don't understand why. Must have been something weird with the state. I guess we'll chalk it up to I'm ne never going to see that again, right? But with Datomic, you can say, well, the user reported the problem on Tuesday. You know, 17 people have made schema changes and updated things and whatever since then. But I can say to Datomic, hey, what exactly was the state of the database when this user reported this anomalous behavior, right? And then you can look in your code and say, oh, look, it's because X, Y, and Z, which was uh, actually, you know, mitigated by some changes that have happened since then, for instance. Another place where we see a lot of traction with the built-in uh, notion of time in Datomic is in regulated industries. So we think sort of financial services, healthcare, insurance, these kinds of places where there is usually, there's at least a business level, if not frequently a, a sort of legal level requirement for maintaining a history of what has happened, right? I need to know exactly when so-and-so's account balance changed, or I need to know exactly when, you know, uh, the status of this patient was changed from A to B. Obviously, there are plenty of ways that you can sort of layer on top of any existing application some of those features, but the idea with Datomic is you don't have to, and there isn't the chance that, oh, you know, we wrote a bug into that system, so all of our history tracking just doesn't work, right? The database uh, is responsible for maintaining an uh, exact record of how all the data in there has changed. Datomic uses a query language called Datalog. Can you explain what Datalog is and how it's different from a more traditional query language like SQL? Sure. Datalog, formally, is a subset of Prolog, uh, which is a logic programming language. The One of the most significant differences between Datalog and Prolog is that Datalog is guaranteed to terminate, which is obviously a desirable feature of a query language that you're using for a database. Formally, mathematically speaking, Datalog is equivalent to the relational algebra plus recursion, which means from a sort of formal methods perspective, you can do anything you could do with SQL with Datalog, and possibly even more if you consider that you can do recursive things. Datalog uses a pattern-matching approach to writing queries. It's very logic-oriented in the way that, you know, I would argue a good query language should be. In general, a lot of people sort of approach it, they say, this is kind of weird, I don't really know what I think about this, I know SQL already, but after a day or so of playing with Datalog, it really starts to shine in the sense that because, again, the, the Datomic uses this, what we call the universal relation, this five-tuple datum, and the Datalog query language equivalently uses this relation, your queries look like your datums, right? So you're, you're writing a query that includes a set of patterns that match what the data in the database and, and furthermore, the data in your data model represent. And what that means is that it's often very straightforward to translate your query from language, from, you know, I want to know X, into a set of data log clauses that are very uh, logically consistent with your both your data model and the question you're trying to ask. What are some of the downsides of using Datomic? What are the things that people struggle with? I think there's certainly a bit of a learning curve, especially for people who have, you know, a, a strong 
long time commitment to some other technology or technologies, right? As you just pointed out, the SQL, you know, it's not a SQL system that uses data log. Some of the ideas behind Datomic may seem a little different, right? This idea that your database never forgets, you don't overwrite data. Like, wait, how do I, how do I write my program if I can't tell it to delete things, right? There's a bit of a, um, there's a bit of an adjustment, I think, in terms of the way that you would approach problem solving. Um, in general, uh, people who come from the Clojure ecosystem have a very easy time with it because, of course, it reflects many of the same values and ethos as Clojure itself. But I think that, you know, we see a lot of people in a lot of different technologies and industries and backgrounds really gravitating more towards data-oriented systems that rely on the principles of functional programming and, you know, isolation and and all these principles that Datomic really resonates with. So, you know, one of my biggest suggestions to people is, you know, just give it a shot. I mean, spend a little bit of time. I understand that trying new sort of unfamiliar things can often be a little bit of a challenge, but more often than not, people come away quite pleased that they have spent the time and, and sort of learned the, the interesting differences that there are to learn from Datomic. Okay, final question. Datomic has been around since 2012. How has the database evolved since then, and what are the plans for the future? That's a great question. So I joined Cognitech in 2014 when Datomic had been out for, yeah, about two years, a little less than two years. And I've been formally on the Datomic team since about mid-2015, I think. And in that time, we've seen a huge number of changes. So the first and possibly most obvious big change is that we've released Datomic Cloud. So this is an entirely new code base. It's an entirely new database. We didn't talk as much about it. It, again, provides many of the same semantic guarantees and, and functional capabilities as Datomic on-prem, but with a significantly different set of architectural decisions. So, for instance, there's no longer a transactor. It uses a client API, but has the ability to do things in the cloud. It includes as well, actually, a, a deployment model that we call Datomic Ions, where you can actually ship your code up to the running database and sort of use it as an application deployment platform. There are many other aspects of Datomic Cloud that are sort of unique and very interesting, which you know I'd love to talk about sometime. But we certainly have spent a lot of time working on, on that aspect of it. Additionally, since since I've joined, many many large features like tuples have come out, which have really extended and expanded the capabilities of Datomic as a, a database system, uh, both in terms of you know its actual semantic functionality and also performance and, and these sort of other uh, important aspects. Another really exciting thing that we we released recently is something we call analytics support, and so this actually speaks a little bit to your previous question. Analytics support is a set of uh, features that we've included that allow you to actually connect more traditional SQL-based tools to a Datomic system. So using analytics support, you can do things like connect Tableau or connect Power BI or, or Apache Superset to your Datomic system and run your business analytics tools against it without having to do separate ETL into whatever data stores they prefer to have, right? Uh, it provides essentially a subset of a SQL interface to Datomic that's tailored specifically for sort of the analytical side of things. So, and that's available both, both in Datomic on-prem and in Datomic cloud. I've also been fortunate enough at the company to work a lot with our customers. So I spend a lot of my time uh, talking to either existing or potential customers about what sorts of problems they're trying to solve, uh, you know, why they're potentially considering Datomic, what other solutions they've looked at, what kind of problems they're having with Datomic or, or without Datomic, 
And I've been able to, to find a really interesting groups of people who I've communicated and, and conversed with who've, who've all come to this technology, you know, from many different places, many different industries, because of a lot of the underlying systemic value propositions of both Clojure and Datomic as an ecosystem and as an approach to writing software, you know, carefully and systematically. And I think that, you know, going forward, that's one of the places where Datomic shines now, always has shined, and I, I certainly think will continue to shine, is that it holds these sort of principles around simplicity and immutability and the way that we should be thinking about treating our distributed systems very carefully. A lot of the other features are, are wonderful and, and exciting, but but many times some of those features get in the way of the, you know their polish on top of needing to remember that you have to be very conscientious when you're talking about the database of your system that the foundations are really strong. And so that, that what I would say, is one of the greatest strengths of both Datomic uh, on-prem and Datomic cloud. And I certainly uh, think that that will absolutely hold true in the future. I, I guess the second part of your question is, where, where are we going from here? We're consistently developing uh, additional features, additional tooling. I'm personally involved with a lot of our customers on the side of sort of how can we make it easier for to use Datomic, right? Even if it's not necessarily a feature side of things, like what are the aspects where Datomic is either difficult to learn or you found something unexpected or surprising about it or, you know, our, our tooling and documentation isn't as good as it should be. I'm heavily focused on improving all of those things as much as possible. I also think that both Datomic on-prem and Datomic cloud continue to grow in terms of our user base and the number of companies, and, and to some degree, even the size of companies that are using it. So I would expect that in the next few years, we'll see quite a bit more community-sourced sort of content. And, you know, I'm excited to... I always love to hear what people are doing with Datomic that isn't something I would have thought of. So, yeah, I, mean, I think that, that the biggest places that I'm excited to look forward to are those things that a lot of our customers are coming up with that are really cool applications of the technology that we've put together. Marshall, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Thanks, Jeff. 